You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you're there in First Peter, we're just beginning a new series called Exiles. It's, uh, it's a series about what it means to, um, to live uh, in a place that's not our home. It means to, uh, to recognize and see that as we're here for a short time, um, that ultimately Jesus is our home and that Jesus became the ultimate exile, that he walked in this place to show what it's like to carry the kingdom of heaven wherever he is. And he was always inviting people, if you notice this, right? The prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people that were homeless, so to speak, in the worldly sense to come home to him. And he told us that, you know, that foxes have dens and, and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What does that mean other than the fact that um, he didn't find home in the, in the virtual and the geographic reality here, but in some other spiritual place. And so that's what we're going after for the next um, couple of weeks. But um, uh, some of you guys have had a chance to meet um, my dad, the Cam Chow Wong, uh, growing up with him in uh, Albany, New York. My original place of location was uh, with my dad. My dad was a law student at SUNY Albany. And so uh, he, was, he was poor in his pocket, but rich in his heart, I guess. And so uh, we had a great time growing up. It was just me and him. Uh, living over there with my dad, and, um, and he was tough on me. You know, dads, they need to be tough on you. He would always make me do my science work three different times. He'd be like, listen, little Johnny, he's not going to Harvard. You need to go do your work three times, not just one time, because by the third time, it'll be better than the first time. So I'd do my science homework twice in pencil and once in pen, three times. By the time you get it the third time, it'll be better than usual. Uh, he was tough on me. Um, I remember he had this little, like, karate dojo that he set, <laughs> set up in the backyard one time, which these days, I feel like if you just had a non-solicited, you know, karate class studio, that would not be a win. That would not win or fly, I think, in, you know, modern-day societies. But in the 90s, it works. And so uh, we used to have these little kids that could come over, and, like, we'd play this little flag football exercise with, like, you'd stuff the sock into your uh, belt buckle there, and you'd, like, run around and, like, get used to your feet and stuff. He was a pretty good, pretty good teacher, and he kind of got kids moving and so forth. Uh, but he was always tougher on me than the other kids. He'd be like, good job, Johnny. You kicked so good, da 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 And he'd be like, Oliver, work harder. Stop being lazy, you know? And so he would push on me. Um, in, in, in the area of, of, of school, in the area of everything, basketball, martial arts, everything else. Even when me and my brother would bring home A's and B's, you know, it would always be, you got the A. You know, what, what is it that you could learn from this uh, example, even though you, you know, didn't get anything wrong? Is there something to be learned from it? And he was always like that. And I learned to appreciate it. That was his love language, right? It was tough love. It was this idea of I'm calling you out to call you up. I'm not calling you out for shame. I'm calling you out for purpose. I'm calling you out for identity. And I want you to know that I'm calling you into something um, beyond where you can see. And so ultimately, you're not going where they're going. And, and I'm not going to treat you the way I'm treating them because you're not them. And you're not going to where they're going. You're going to be different. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be called up and not just called out. And so what's that feeling when, right, when, when, uh, when the principal would call you to the office and you'd have to go down that little hallway and, you know, get into his office and he'd look at you and you'd never talked to him before in your life. And all of a sudden, like your chair's like this and his chair's up here and he looks down at you and he starts talking to you about whatever it was. I remember... This one time, when AOL Online first came out, and you uh, had this little CD that came in the mail, and um, I joined like everybody else and would chat with Kyra on uh, AOL on Instant Chat Messenger or whatever. And uh, this lady from like down the hall thought that uh, for some reason that I had given her a virus, like her computer stopped working, and it was like wouldn't start, and she was on AOL. And the police, like back then, this is literally how just rudimentary everything was back then. They were like, "You ninth grade Chinese kid in Clay High School, you were the one that caused." 
viruses in all of the internet and all of the things just because you live next door. And of course, that makes zero sense whatsoever. But anyways, I remember that day when the police officer came down. Could you imagine being in ninth grade next to Kyra? And the police officer walked down the hallway and then walks you into the principal's office. Like, what's the feeling that you have when you get in front of face-to-face of authorities like that? In the world, usually when it is that you're called out, when you're pulled over by the police or when you're called on the PA, you go to some place uh, not to be called up, but to be called out. You go to places usually because you've done something wrong and you, you don't go in front of authority places for places of identity, but oftentimes places of shame and oftentimes places of judgment. And so this is exactly um, uh, what, um, what really the Israelites had always, um, and all humanity really feels about God. Uh, it's, this, it's this feeling that as we're getting called out or set apart, that it's always for something we did wrong, and it's always to vindicate and to bring judgment for uh, a, a misaction or a misstep that we've taken. Even the Israelites originally, if you guys uh, knew this from Exodus 19, the original Ten Commandments given to the people of God were not rules for them to follow, but really intact into an identity that they were supposed to be. You're a holy you know, priesthood and you're a chosen generation, you're a treasured position, and I'm calling you up this hill not to punish you, but to instill identity into you. And while all the Israelites were called up, only one went up faithfully. That was Moses. And the rest of them stayed down with the golden calf because they feared that being called out was to be called out for shame and called out for judgment instead of, instead of identity. And so First Peter, this book that we'll be looking at for the next couple of weeks, is a journey of identity. Um, it, is, it is a book that's written to believers to call them out, to set them apart, to say, your, your people are not like those people. You're not acting like those people because you're not from the same places they're from and you're not going to the same places they're going and so necessarily you are distinct. He's talking to Christians then and now. This letter would speak to us and and say, listen, the reason why you are called into this higher calling, into this um, other way of life is because you don't belong to this place. You are not home in this place and you are from a different place, headed to a different space and so therefore you are not to blend in. You are not to... Um, you are not to assimilate into the world that you're living in. And so in a time like this, the commodification of identity is so prolific. You know, you can swab the inside of your cheek and send it away for $25 and figure out you're half Cherokee and half Asian and Japanese and Navajo or whatever else may be. And, and, we, and we are um, seemingly more and more, you know, bending over backwards to spend money and time to try and figure out who we are. We take all of these identity tests, right? And so I talk about this all the time, right? The Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs and this test and the strengths finders, we're all obsessed with trying to figure out that exact answer for why God called us up in the hill in the first place is to figure out who we are in this world, who we are. Because if, if we don't know who we are, we're, we're really a victim and we're vulnerable to anybody who would want to tell us who we are. That's the highest going rate in the commodification of our identity. It's a political identity. What is, is identity politics? Other than saying that if you vote for this person and stand for this kind of a mask and do this kind of a thing, then we can tell you who you are. That is the transactional nature that is, that is in, the, in the market arena right now uh, for how our politics are engaging our people. It's trying to sell who people are with way of votes. Entertainment's the same thing. If you subscribe to this person or follow this person or like this kind of um, phone, if you're an Android person or an iPhone thing, all of a sudden, this kind of a person, and, and it's up for, you know, whoever, the loudest bidder and the, and the loudest voice and, and whoever can get the quickest grab as to who we are. But before any of these people began to try and write a storyline, a narrative that we would fit into or create a personality profile that would try and tell us who we are, God's telling us, listen, you're never going to find who you are from them. You can only find who you are from me. And so I'm calling you apart. I'm calling you to be different, and I'm actually treating you differently. 
I'm having higher or different expectations uh, around you. And the Ten Commandments or any other things, these laws, these commands that are on you are not here to oppress you. They are here to instill identity in you and call you apart to be different because you're not like them and you're not from where they're from and you're not going to where you're going. And so if you're a Christian, you are set apart for a purpose and for an identity and not for shame. And so this is the, the opening letter uh, opening paragraph of this letter that we're going to be looking at in the next couple of, of weeks. But of all the different uh, nomenclature, all the different names that Peter uses, holy nation, set apart, treasured, all these things, the one common theme that runs through the letter from chapter 1 through chapter 5 is in this verse, Peter, he says, an apostle of, apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, to God's elect. This is how he opens the letter. This is who he thinks he's talking to. It's, it's God's elect, and then he follows up, exiles. An exile is somebody that's far from home. An exile is a person that moved from Kentucky to South Carolina, and you don't know where your bank is, and you don't know what church you're going to, and you don't know what's funny and what's not funny, and you don't know where to go shopping and so forth. You don't know what's going on. You're the new kid in town. You're the new kid at school, and so you're not home. So he's, he's using this word, this language, to speak to Christians. So if anything else, I guess at face value, say, hey, you're not home. Okay, so you're an elect exile, and he says you're scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So the people that God, uh, uh, Paul here is, Peter rather, is writing to are highly um, at risk. They're in jeopardy. Their family, their jobs are in jeopardy. They're highly persecuted. They are under severe trial and um, he is speaking to them as they're scattered throughout uh, the known world, mainly under the Roman Empire. And so here's a couple of uh, pictures just to get us thinking about Peter's world. Um, this, for example, was some graffiti that they found um, in this uh, Roman building on the side of the building. Uh, this uh, uh, graffiti is called Alexanamos's uh, God. Alexanamos is the character down at the bottom left, and it says Alexanamos worships his God, and then there on the cross there is Jesus. It is the picture of Jesus as a jackass. Um, what kind of a king dies on a cross and what kind of a fool would worship the king that died on the cross? This is the kind of persecution and the kind of ridicule that Christians of that day would go through. Here's another picture to get us thinking of a home that's torn apart in the middle of um, the Roman government. There the Roman soldiers are coming down and some of these women and the children are getting pulled out even without clothing and uh, right in the middle of their, their meeting and their gathering in any given moment, um, the Roman hand of government would clamp down on some of these families and they'd be separated, maybe to never see each other again or maybe to never see each other alive again. The very last picture is, of course, of uh, Peter himself who was uh, uh, crucified as prophesied upside down as the Roman governor Nero took over. He became more harsh in his edicts and his persecution of the Christians at that time. And so Peter considered it uh, his glory to be uh, killed and crucified and pay the ultimate price the way that Jesus did. And so, um, and so he writes to these, these people, if you see in verse 2, and it's in that context that it's urgent that Peter wants the people to know that in their scatteredness and in their persecution, that they are not living where they are by chance, but by choice, that they're chosen. This is what he wants them to know, and really us to know as well, is that these these elect exiles, wherever they are, in whatever persecution that they're under, and whatever their day is going like, they've been chosen. Look at verse 2. 
who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, all three of the, uh, of the triune God here, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. It says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So notice that little run there of the Trinity of the Father and the Spirit and of the Son has an order and a sequence to the chosenness of the people he's writing to. So I don't know if you go back in your mind of you know, the minute that you got saved. The Bible says that only people that follow Jesus aren't smarter, stronger, work harder. They're born again. It's a miracle. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It's the power of the resurrected son working in us to transform us from walking away from him to walking towards him. And what the scripture is saying here of them and of us is that that happened not because of our will, but because of God's will. We didn't choose him, but he chose us. Okay, and so there's usually chosenness when human people get a hold of that word. It gets into this debate about who's in and who's out, and it's this, this, this debate. But ultimately, if you read the words about chosen and election within any part of the Bible, Ephesians or Romans or 9 or whatever, it's never about debating. It's always about celebrating. It's about telling the people of God who they are. So it's not a debate about classifications, denominations. It's a celebration of, look, like I don't have to have the answer between personal responsibility and God's choice. But what I do need to know is where I am and who I'm with and what's happened to me today has not slipped through the fingerprints of God. And I'm not here by chance. I'm here by choice. I've been chosen by him. And what's been chosen by him cannot be unchosen. This is the kind of sort of language that he wants us to understand, the legal, spiritual ramifications of being chosen in Christ, the permanence of that, right? So what he's saying is that the minute that you turned away from your old life and turned towards Jesus, both you and I, okay, the minute that we turned, we were instantly forgiven. Did you catch that? We, we, we turned to him, we were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. But before that moment ever happened, before the Hillsong song ever started and Max Locator, or wherever it is, you know, starts preaching, okay? The, the minute that that happened, right, before that ever happened, the spirit already touched you. There's nobody turning, this is what Jesus says, nobody, nobody comes to the Father except the one that's drawn by the spirit and nobody's turned to Jesus except for the one that's been visited. So before you knew Jesus, you actually heard the spirit, this is what Paul's saying, that the, that the soteriology of this thing, the way you got saved was you turned to Jesus, but before you turned, the Spirit touched you. He sanctified you. And before the Spirit ever touched you to convict your heart of sin, before any of that, God was seated on the throne but the foundations of time, and he already executed in his perfect will. Jesus would come, right? And he already foreknew and predestined you, and he chose you. Before you were forgiven, the Spirit touched you. Before Jesus forgave you, the Spirit touched you. Before the Spirit touched you, the Father chose you. And so what is Peter saying, and not just an execution of theological discourse here, except, except you are not where you are on chance. You are here by choice. You are here because of a purpose. And so he's saying to those believers and to us today that how much money we have in the account and what we have and what our strengths are and our weaknesses, who our spouse is, how many kids we have and so forth, these are not by chance, these are chosen. These are not accidents. And there's nobody here in this room by natural birth or by spiritual birth that has been born on accident. Every single person has a purpose and God has chosen them ahead of time to do his will. And so however scattered you are, however hopeless you feel, however persecuted you are, just know that before the beginning of time that nothing has slipped through the Father's fingers and nothing here is on accident except for the very choosing of God. It's all been chosen ahead of time. And so we ask ourselves as we come to a book like this, what in the world would First Peter, a book like this, be relevant to us? I mean, you've just got, you know, people, their houses are ripped apart and their wives are getting separated and the husbands are getting separated and Peter's getting crucified. Said, oh, it's like, I don't know. Like, I can't predict the weather, so I'm not exactly sure what's going to hold for us in the future, but it doesn't seem like we live 
in quite the same context historically as Peter does. And, and that's, a fair, that's a fair comment. Like, we do need to have strict categories that, like, you waiting in Woodruff Road traffic is not the same thing as Peter getting crucified upside down. Like, we have to have a clear category here that I had 10 trips to Starbucks and all of them went great. You know what I mean? Like, I do not live fundamentally a persecuted life, okay? I do suffer under the same temptations, and I do suffer under the same spiritual warfare, and I think the the spiritual principalities are equal opportunity employers, and they come against the flesh, and they come against um, men and women alike, and they have no sympathy for any of us, and they will attack us in any country on whatever socioeconomic status we are in, right? But there are at least three things that I thought of this week that are relevant to us about 1 Peter and what we might take with us as we kind of study in our groups and on Sundays and so forth. And the very first thing is this. The very first thing I think that 1 Peter will speak to us in deeply is one, um, is that both poor and disenfranchised and subjected and subjugated Christians and rich and affluent Christians both need to be reminded that this place is not home. Because if you're a poor person, you might start to mis- misinterpret your socioeconomic status and your social standing for your spiritual um, your spiritual uh, seatedness with Christ, right? You might, you might start to think that because of who's in power, who's in control, or what your bank account looks like, that somehow that his chosenness was undermined. And Peter's saying, no matter how poor you are, or how down in the social status you are, that does not impact your spiritual status. Your social status does not impact your spiritual status. And secondly, if you're a rich person, you had five white chocolate mochas, maybe take a break on those. Those are not good for you, speaking to myself, right? Is this place is not your home. And so this is not the time to get comfort and cozy. This is not the time to start building up a home and finding your home and status and finding your home and your job and finding your home and your significance and your phone and your materials and all these other things. Now's the time to find your home in Jesus. Because if you're poor or if you're rich, nobody's home except for Jesus. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, but he's home more than any of us. And he's here to invite homeless people home. He's the one that is walking us home and showing us the way, the truth, and the life. Number two, and this is the second thing, is that, again, I can't predict the weather. But if you look at the trajectory of our history, just over the last 50 years, I'm going to guess, and maybe you'd guess as well, that the kids that we're raising and the students that we're discipling are going to grow up in a more um, Christian-adverse environment, a more persecuted environment than the one that we grew up in. Like, in other words, we're not raising our kids into the future um, for a world that we grew up in the past. That's over. We're going to raise our kids in an environment where... Um, where Christianity is going to see more adversity than the time, the last 20 years that we've experienced. We, we grew up in a time in the 50s, especially in the South, where Christianity was celebrated, where Christianity was something that maybe we weren't Christian, but we would appreciate Christians and we would recognize that they were noble and we would recognize that they stood for life and love and joy and peace and happiness, self all these things, right? But, but that, 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 that ended, that season is no longer, and I don't think we're going back there. You know, in, in the time period that I grew up in, at least it was acceptable. Like it wasn't celebrated but it was accepted. Like, you have a faith, I have a faith. I can appreciate the fact that you, your faith is different than mine. This is no longer. More and more, it seems like the way that society is headed is that what is considered Christian or the label is Christian is not accepted. It's dangerous. It's considered to be, you know, bigoted and narrow and judgmental and, and, and all these other things, right, that, that Christianity is viewed as and all the things that was celebrated and even accepted before it is no longer accepted. So we are raising our kids. We are needing to raise our kids ready to have faith for exiles. Because here's the point. There is no scripture that ever promises us life, labor, and the pursuit of happiness. I might never have to do CPR on a person, but if I'm a lifeguard, I have to be trained for it because that's what I'm trained to do. And what he's saying is that the namesake of being a Christian under Christ has been, will be, and always will be a minority and majority group. 
and needs to expect, embrace, and engage persecution in harsh times. And so if our faith, you know, if our faith is not ready for um, what so many of our brothers and sisters around the world and Peter and these other places in, the, in times past in other areas around the world have already experienced, then we're not living a, a pure 360 faith. Our faith is meant to be resilient in persecution. Our faith is meant to shine bright in darkness. And if we're not teaching ourselves and training ourselves as well as our kids to shine out in places outside of the box, then we're not embracing the full nature of our inheritance that's held. And so as we work through this, you know, the, the question, the thing that's been really ringing in my ears lately, somebody said to me at a dinner the other day, it's like, everybody, I think, is going to be led by the Spirit today, and we're going to go on from this place, and we're going to be, we're all different. We're all wired differently, different gifts, and we're called to different places, right? But all of us have to figure out where we're going to take a stand. Because the Christian life is not, right? it's not in the world, not of the world. So it's not Christian huddle club, it's not Christian book club, and we just get into a little holy huddle and make everything great and blame everybody else and blah, 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 blah. Like, that doesn't work. And the other thing is, is that it's not assimilation. It's not coming in here and just blending into the culture. At some point, God has put us here to take a stand and be unpopular. So the question is not, are we going to engage culture? The question is, where will you draw the line? At some place, you and your family are going to have to draw the line and count the cost. And that ultimately is what this book is about. And I think it's going to be appropriate and helpful as we just kind of walk through, is just consider we're not Peter and we're not getting hung upside down yet, right? But we are living in a time and place. And the call of Christianity is not to blend in and be a chameleon. And it's also not to retreat and hold, become in a holding pattern, in a holy huddle, but it's to engage. So where will you take your stand? You have to decide that. You have to, you have to make amends in yourself and make your decision ahead of time of where you're going to stand and where you're going to draw the line, because necessarily if you are not running into the enemy and the powers and the principalities every time in a confrontational way because you're a Christian, you might be going the wrong direction, right? So where's the stand and where are we going to take it is the question I think as we go through in First Peter. So verse 3, it says this. He says, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So Peter, uh, I think, in one way is, 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 is showing us this minority way, this exile way that's different from the majority it's how to stand apart, to be called out to something more, to something different, to something more eternal. And so he's saying this little walk that you're walking on, you're making your little stroll. And notice the very first thing that he says to us is he says, um, there's going to be things in your life that you pick up and that you lay down and people in your life and people out and jobs that you're going to take and jobs that you're going to let go of and so on and so forth. Like we all have these different paths. But the one thing that we all have in common that we cannot let go of, we cannot afford to lose is our hope. It's the very first thing out of his mouth. He's speaking like a dad, sending his kids off to college, knowing that who they are is going to be challenged and threatened within the context of, of the outside world. And he's saying the one thing you cannot afford to lose, you can lose a lot of stuff, but one thing you cannot afford to lose is your hope. You have to have a living hope through, he says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, not your car, not your spouse, not the American dream, not these other things. It is the resurrection of Christ. This is our hope. You can't lose it. You cannot lose this hope. And it's the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and, and that resurrection is a foretaste of the future. It is the first and not the last of all of the new creation that will roll out into every street and every ghetto and every mountain and every river is going to just roll out when he returns and his kingdom will be established for on into perpetuity, into, the, into eternity through Christ. And so the resurrection, the empty tomb, is a promise of the future. And this is the future, verse 4, an inheritance that can never uh, perish, spoil, or fade. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you 
You know, different economies, they come and go. The gold standard, you know, Bitcoin, whatever, they can all fluctuate. But this inheritance does not lose its value. It is held by heaven itself. It is held by the hands of God itself. Who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have, suffer, have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. Peter, um, as you guys remember, uh, as just a recollection, uh, is is the uh, bull in the china shop disciple. Uh, he is an eight on the Enneagram with an eight wing. He is just impetuous, shoot first, aim second type of guy. And he, um, just as a little bit of a rundown, if you have read the scripture, maybe just to be reminded, he was the one who had his name changed by Jesus. Jesus literally gave him the name Peter. His name used to be Simone, uh, Simon. And he was changed because he was able to identify the Messiah um, just in front of him. And at that point, he was told he was going to be the foundation on which the church was built. And in fact, that prophecy came true when he preached to 3,000 came on that one day in Pentecost. Uh, he was also one of the disciples that saw Jesus transcended in his, um, his uh, un- unveiled glory. Uh, and he was the one that proposed that Elijah and Moses would both get a tent next to Jesus, and he was able to see and identify, both in spirit, both in his eyes as well, who Jesus was even before many didn't. He also was the disciple that followed Jesus out on the water. He was the one that heard Jesus and walked out on the water with him. And so he is... Um, of great reputation, you know, when you read in the Gospels, but also not always for the right reasons. He was also the one, as you guys remember, who denied Jesus three times, even though he promised that he wouldn't. He also was the one who took a sword and quicker than he could think, chopped off one of these Roman soldiers' ears, and Jesus had to take a minute, heal that sucker back up, right? And so, so he is very impetuous. He's very er- erratic, okay? And he is speaking to us, and, and, and the one message that he wants us to remember, and the one message I think we could take with us today, is that the one thing that you cannot lose as you walk as you walk home as an exile, as you, as you are walking home with Jesus, is you cannot lose your hope. And he says, this hope is not a dead hope. This hope is not a fleeting hope, a changing hope. This hope is not banked on anything else. Um, this hope is a held inheritance, and it is a living hope. And so our hope is a living hope because if the tomb is empty, then Jesus is alive. And, and so this hope is a living hope. It's not a dead hope, a temporary hope, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a fleeting hope. It is a living hope held hope in heaven. And so there's a, uh, there's a book um, that maybe some of you guys have read before um, that is a very popular book. You can go get it in the library. Go get it at Barnes & Noble um, even today. And uh, it's a book by Viktor Frankl. If you want to take a picture of that, it's on the screen. And um, it is a German uh, psychiatrist who was, uh, excuse me, a Jewish psychiatrist who was um, underneath uh, German occupation at his time when his parents were killed and his wife died of, of sickness. He was taken into a concentration camp and during that time, one of the things that he held on to hope with was he would use his kind of like five to nine to counsel people within the Jewish uh, concentration camps um, to, to encourage them through their journey. And he would, he would kind of take notes. He was, during that time, observing and watching some fundamental things about what human life is like under severe um, times of suffering. And uh, he writes in his book a couple of uh, things that give us a lot of revelation, really, about what hope is and what it does to a person and what happens when they don't have it. And one of the things that he says that as hope depletes in the heart of a human person is that uh, hopelessness in humans causes viciousness and brutality. So one of the things that he found in interviews with uh, people that were under Holocaust um, rule is that they, they began to see their, the dimming of the hope ahead of them. They would start to realize that there was hopelessness and all that they had was uh, suffering ahead of them. And it would just, it would, it would, disintegrate those humans into the lowest common denominator of just being like animals. And they would go and beat up other prisoners and there would be rapes and there would be fighting and there would be all this contentiousness because if there's no hope, 
then, then some of the humanity's lost. And so that was the first thing, that there was violence and brutality because of this. The second thing that he said would happen is that you would have people that just wouldn't get up for lunch anymore. Like they just couldn't get out of bed. They would completely lose hope. They would just completely default to apathy because if you don't have hope, you don't have any reason to get up in the morning. And so you just, you, you just everything's gray and you can't, you can't make it one more day because you don't have hope. You don't have hope. The third thing he says is that something really detrimental can happen to human beings is that they put their hope into fantasy. And so they would actually believe something that is outside of reality and, and both in the present and then as time would go on, as they woke up to find that reality wasn't actually coming true, it would be, it would be incredibly paralyzing and, 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 um, and disillusioning for the soul of a human being. And so, for example, he gave this one example of this guy who had this dream and he thought it was uh, from God and, and he thought that the uh, occupation would stop on like March 15th or something like that. And so he circled the calendar and he believed that March 15th was going to be his day of liberation. And then March 15th came and there was no liberation. And then March 16th and March 17th and March 18th. And isn't it, isn't it profound to think about this, right? That because his hope was deferred, he didn't only become heartbroken, like he began to die inside. His body began to break down. His, he, he began to take on, you know, his immunity system got messed up and he caught a fever three days out after March 15th. And by seven days out, he was dead. And so what is that saying to us? Other than that hope is not just about happiness for humans. Hope is about survival. If a person has no hope, they have no life. And so hope is the essence and the core of like everything that we are, of the character that we are. And so this guy, and Peter, I believe as well, Victor Frankl, is saying that, that our hope uh, can't be put in anything um, that is here. Hope to survive those harsh circumstances in really life in general has to be something transcendent that cannot be, that cannot be killed or spoiled, or faded. And so he closes the book and the memoir up by, by saying this profound thought, I think, and, and that is, he, he makes the connection between the audience, which would be us, and then the people in the Holocaust, and that the Holocaust um, is not so much except, uh, exceptional, but it's accelerated. So what he means by that is that it's not that, um, it, it is that people, um, in a very short amount of time, in two or three years, lose their spouse, and their livelihood, and their jobs, and all sorts of of, of, of ideals and fantasies that they would have for the future. They lose all of those all at once. But what that, is, that experience and those memoirs are also telling us is that maybe not as quickly for some of us, but slowly over time, that exact same thing happens to us. And so I don't know, maybe you have like a parent or maybe you have somebody older than you and just think about the world through their eyes as they grow up, you know, 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Like it doesn't happen all at once, but the world they grew up in is no longer existing anymore. For many of our parents, or our grandparents especially, their friends are no longer living anymore. Many of our grandparents have spouses that have died. Many of our grandparents have bodies that don't work like they used to, and they are under a type of suffering. And so what, what he's saying is like, don't exceptionalize the Holocaust and suffering to think that is only for certain people, times, and places, that all of life, right, we're not getting any younger, we are getting older, and all of life is essentially the scattering and the depletion of false hopes. That over time, that our hopes that we, that we put in, all of them begin to let us down. And so really one of two things happen. We either get the job that we dream of or we die reaching for the job, but either way, we lose our hope. Some of us, some of us die waiting on the job or the dream scenario that we're looking for and we die devastated and depleted because we never reached it. And, but some of us get it and realize it wasn't our hope in the first place. And that's almost, one of those two responses are, are almost just as bad as the other. Some of us get the dream spouse, right? And we realize that that person could not fulfill the hope that we wanted. And now we have to reckon with a kind of Holocaust in a way. I mean, I'm not trying to be irreverent at all about the massive amount of human suffering and brutality that went on there, but in, in the smallest quantitative sense, 
It is the dying of a hope that we are both experiencing as human beings, right? The dying of the hope is ultimately the beginning of the death of the soul. And so both Frankel and Peter are pointing to us that our hearts and our souls are far too eternal to put hope on finite things. And we don't need a, a worldly hope or a, or a dying hope, but in Peter's language, we need a living one. And so, um, I don't know, let's say, let's say you um, have had a dream. Have you ever had a dream before um, that turned into a nightmare causing you to lose people that you, that you love? You ever woken up from a dream and you were, you were asleep and maybe it was like a kidnapping or you know, a fatal accident or something and maybe you lost one person or two people or maybe you woke up and everybody was gone and what's it like? Like Christmas morning, you know, everybody's just scrooge and you wake up and you just wanna kiss everybody and hug everybody because like you finally realize those people that were so annoying to you, right? What it'd be like to have them and what is absence make the heart grow fonder and you don't know what you got until it's gone and sometimes when you have these nightmares, it's this wonderful awakening of thankfulness of everything that you, that you have, right? And some of us, some of us wake up from our dreams and wake up into the nightmare. Some of us wake up and the person that we went to sleep missing is still gone. Or the opportunity that we had is still gone. Or the sin that we didn't want to commit, we still committed, right? And we wake up and that's the reality we live in, right? We wake up into this place of loss, okay? So what is Peter saying? Let's read again. Peter's saying, praise be the God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth and a living hope. What's the hope? The hope is something he saw as an apostle with his own two eyes. The hope's the empty tomb. The hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love that Bethel song. It's called Living Hope. It says that there was a moment in time. I mean, can you picture it? It actually happened. Like, this isn't just, you know, fantasy. This is reality that the dead body of Jesus within the tomb was dead one moment, and then the song says, your buried body began to breathe. I mean, could you imagine that moment? What would you pay to be in the room to see Jesus' horizontal body, dead and lifeless, his heart begin to beat, and inhale and exhale. What was that like? What would that mean, right? It says there that he got up and he appeared to 12 different disciples and he showed himself with a physical body. It was not a wafting spiritual body that just kind of hovered around like Casper. I mean, he was a physical body that people could touch and talk to. And, and so what is that saying to us before he ascended? What is that saying to us other than Jesus did not bring back a replaced body, but a resurrected one. And therefore, he's the first, not the last, that he's not gonna bring a replacement to us in this new creation, he's bringing a renewal. What does Revelation say? He's not making new things. He's making all things new, okay? And so the promise of the new hope is not just that this guy from Nazareth resurrected. It's that everything that puts their trust in them is going to be resurrected as well. And we don't just get a replacement of the things that we lost. We get things made new, given back to us. This is the promise. This is the promise. This is the reality. Do you believe it or not? Is this your hope or not? And is this where you're putting your hope that no matter what has been lost to you, if it's been your innocence, if it's been your reputation, if it's been, if it's been your own uh, sin that you've, that you've made fatal decisions or problematic decisions in your life, things you wish you could take back, words you wish you could take back, if it's family members that you've lost, if it's limbs, if it's eyesight, if it's ears, if it's, if it's, vision, if it's anything, whatever has been lost, Jesus is making the claim with the empty tomb that he's gonna give it back to you. And not only that, he's making it new. This is the promise. You will, you will not be eternally separated, right, from from the things that are taken from you on this earth, all things will be given back tenfold. What is Job except for the greatest story of suffering ever? And what happens at the end of Job except for the redemption and the resurrection of all of his hopes? This is our hope in Jesus is that everything he has is ours. He is always with us and everything he has is ours. This is our inheritance. It's a held hope. And so what happens is, is that, I'm gonna read down to this passage, is that with this living hope, because it doesn't change, it doesn't perish, it doesn't phase, 
The hope never changes. What happens is when our hope doesn't change, it's put into a living hope. The hope doesn't change. The hoper changes. This is what it's going to say. So the hope does not change. It doesn't just become, well, I didn't like that truck, so I'm going to get another one. I didn't like that wife. I'm going to get another one. I didn't like that job. I'll get another one. The hope doesn't oscillate. The hope remains firm. And what happens with a hope that remains firm and held and intact is that the hope doesn't change. The hoper changes. Verse 7 says this. He says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the genuineness of our faith, which roots itself in the hope of the resurrection, is getting tested today by fire. And it's doing its work. It's going to result in praise and honor and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, it says, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls. So I don't know what you think of when you think of like cheesy joy songs, you know, hap clapping the Lord, you know, just praise the Lord and all these things. Like the word joy biblically, um, if you're looking at this passage or any other passage, consider it joy, dear brothers, when you suffer trials of all kinds of things. Like it's not just turn your frown upside down, right? When you see Jesus, when he's gonna go to the cross, he doesn't go to the Gethsemane and his prayer is not, well, praise the Lord, brother, happy, hallelujah. Like he's not praying this way, right? What is he doing at the Garden of Gethsemane? But weeping. As a matter of fact, he's so emotionally exhausted at the idea of the hope that he's called to and the joy set before him in the cross that all he can do is recite lamentation poems. He can't even bring his own words into order, and, and so he just has to kind of liturgically pray over these lamentation poems that he had grown up with so, so long ago, right? So joy is not just happy, clappy, turn the frown upside down and just be, be happy, man, Go, don't worry, right? That's not what joy is. There's a deep-rooted joy that the fires and the tribulations burn away to reveal a real kind of joy. And so here, ultimately, I think, is what happens when we fix our eyes on a living hope is the hope doesn't change and we change. And so what, what's ultimately happening is the fire comes to be our friend and burns away false hopes so that we can have real hopes. This is what it says, that the fire comes, and though you have seen him, this is persecution and trials, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And he says, you're filled with this inexpressible joy. The thing about false hopes is that false hopes create small lives. If I have a false hope, my life can only be as big as I can control because I know that if I don't have my hope, I'm going to die. Hope, hopelessness is death to a human. If I, don't, if I don't get that job, if I don't have the wife or the spouse that I was promised, if I don't you know, see this or that happen in my life, then not only does that circumstance become unfortunate, my hope begins to die and wither within it. And so if a person, if you or me, has a false hope, what, what happens in that false hope is I, I can't bear to walk into tragedy and to come in open-hearted and soft because my crying would admit defeat and my mourning of something would admit defeat. And so what, what happens is when we have, when we have false hopes and, and hopes that become idols is it manifests itself in the inability to mourn the inability to really grieve. Because, you know, if my hope is in, a, in, in the job and I don't get the job and it doesn't work out, then I have to pretend like I, well, I don't know, I never hoped for it in the first place and it doesn't really matter and ah, it doesn't really matter that, you know, um, my husband turned out to be a jerk and ah, it doesn't really matter that uh, my health didn't work out the way that I wanted to or ah, it doesn't really matter. I have to pretend like things don't matter because I have to make sure that I'm guarded and and. and and, and that my hope is protected so I can't allow my heart to go out there and actually grieve and actually mourn because if I did, I'd actually have to mourn the death of hope, which is really the death of me. 
The second thing that happens is if we have false hope is that we're not permitted to risk or risk for loss. I'm not going to go out far on things because if I go out there and try something, I might fail and then my hope would die. So I'm not allowed to go out and try things. So my life has to get smaller. If I have a false hope, I'm not allowed to celebrate other people's victories or wins because usually your victory and win, you know, um, uh, imposes on mine, on my territory to have victory and win. And so I'm not allowed to celebrate. And so what's really happening is that the work of, of, of hope mixed with the trials and tribulations around our life actually begin to make us deeper and bigger and, um, and more receptive. I love uh, just reading in the last um, study in, that we heard in City Lights, if you're going with us, you notice there's a theme of laughing and crying. And both in terms of Sarah and the terms of Joseph at the beginning and the end of the story that God's presence begins to transform the laughter and transform the tears. Sarah begins at the laughter of sarcasm and, and, and she um, has false hopes and sees her, her heart let down as the years wear on and she can't have Isaac and God comes to speak to her and transform her laughter. Her laughter used to be of sarcasm and turns into laughter of joy, which is Isaac's name. The same thing with Joseph, that his tears, he, he cries seven times and weeps over his brothers, uh, start with the tears of lament, but then end in the tears of joy. And so for, for, for the world, really, um, uh, joy is just a fleeting uh, experience, whereas tragedy is the ultimate experience. For the Christian, um, tragedy is temporary, where joy is eternal, where joy is permanent. And what is God doing except for, for building into us a deep Jesus-like joy in every season? So um, just a couple of questions in going into this last passage and, and landing kind of for, for just today is, um, is how is the heat um, in your life and the turning up of trial, tribulation, temptation, and persecution? Um, how is it revealing false hopes? What is the hope that deferred causes viciousness and brutality. Anytime that I'm coming into a situation triggered, it's revealing a false hope. Anytime I'm coming into a situation where I'm frustrated, I have an expectation that demands that if that expectation is not met, I'm losing a part of who I am, which suggests to me that it's not that I have the expe- just an expectation, it's that I have a hope. It's that I've put my hope in some of who I am and some of my my sense of security and my sense of identity in a place that it doesn't belong. And so this place that makes us, where is it that you lose your cool and lose yourself and lose the person that you want to be and become vicious and brutal and angry and vindictive, where is that place? Because that's showing you that there is a false hope that's being burned away. Number two, where are you giving up? Where is it that on one day, if the thing is working and vibrant and present for your hope is no longer there, now all of a sudden you have no more reason to live and you can't get up in the morning and you hit the snooze alarm 17 times and you have no purpose, and you walk through life with grayness, that grayness is pointing to something, and it's pointing to more than your disposition or your personality or even your chemical balance. It's like it is pointing, ultimately, to a hope. And this fire has come to, to, to challenge all that. Where is it that we're putting our hope in stock in fantasies and things of, 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 of great reward that, that sometimes come to fruition and then disappear in vapors, and then sometimes uh, we wait and long for them, and we never quite get them, and it, and it totally is the rudder of our ship and it causes us left and right to, to make our different choices because of the fantasies of hope that we have. Where are these false hopes? Because today, today has come to burn away those places to experience real joy. All right, lastly, verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, he says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care. So Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're pointing to something. Verse 11 trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. We know there's something coming. 
We don't know how or who, but Genesis 3 says there's going to be a snake crusher, and he's coming. And in them, they were pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah, that the snake was going to bruise the heel of the Messiah. Okay, but the sufferings of the Messiah are ultimately going to cause the crushing of the snake. And the Messiah is going to bring glory that will follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these. So it's saying that the prophets look forward to something and they're pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus suffered and he was raised and he created a victory for many that would come into his train. And angels even are looking into this moment a backwards-facing hope, a present-facing hope, and ultimately a future-forward-facing hope. And what is the hope that, that he is pointing to here? I believe it's in, in verse 7, where it says this, just further on up that we had already read. It says, These have come to prove the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold. What is it? What is the future hope? We have a present hope. The present hope is that the resurrection is the first and not the last. And he gives everything back. And everything he has is ours. And he is always with us. And that is our present hope. But we have a future hope as well. And the future hope is this, is that when the refining fire comes, it doesn't come to kill us or destroy us, but it comes to purify us. And it causes us to have and result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's hard for us to really rationalize this to some degree, but you know, I read seven different commentaries this week and looked at different sermons, and they all point to the same thing. Is this passage is saying that the praise and the glory and honor, of course, is going to Jesus, but it's also coming to us. This is the unfathomable thing, is when we get to our future home and to our future glory, we're going to hear the most important words ever spoken to us and receive the most important inheritance ever given to us. And that is, Jesus, the one who deserves all the glory and honor and power, is going to look at us and say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. These, these words are the greatest of all the inheritances, and we get it all back, and we get family members back, and we get, you know, honor back, and we get um, our lives back, and we get our purity back, and we get all these things back, but the greatest thing we get back is Jesus himself, because he is the joy set before us. And ultimately, if you really break down the other passage in Philippians, what it's, what it's saying is that when Jesus scorned all the shame and he went through the cross for the joy set before him, his joy was us. And so what are the angels looking forward to? And what do the prophets point to? Except for Jesus embracing us, and us embracing Jesus. This is the great inheritance. This is the great joy that we get at the end of our journey when Jesus looks to us and we receive praise and honor and glory from him, that we're counted like him and we bear his name. Remember what the people in Acts said, that they counted themselves blessed to be worthy of the sufferings that they were given, that somehow we get to bear his name. This is the hope that we have. We have a hope in the past and the present and the future. And ultimately, I think a major theme of what, what Peter is talking about for the rest of the book as we come to a close here, but you guys know this passage, I think it's chapter four, maybe five, verse 15, but Peter says this, in your hearts, he says, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. I just think this is encouraging because it's not saying give a reason for the moral aptitude that you have or the biblical doctrine and understanding that you have or the power and prayer that you have necessarily. It's for the hope. The Christians are here to not just have a living hope, but to be a living hope, to be a testimony for the hope that we have in him. And so this is ultimately the highest category of thing that we're expected of is because Christians, you know, like non-Christian people can be super nice, right? They can be, they can be nicer than Christians. They can have more functional marriages than Christians, right? 
They can be sometimes wiser than Christians and smarter than Christians. But the one thing they cannot have is the hope of the cross. They do not have the hope of the resurrection. Right? And so what, what this book is saying to us is that if we go into this world and take our stand, we have to know what we have and what we don't have. And one thing that we should always have and always need to recognize that we have is an inheritance that held, that's held by him. And therefore, not a dead hope, but a living hope. And that's the only hope. That's the only thing right, that really separates us from anyone else, right? Because we're all sinners, and they're all saved by grace, and we all have needs, and we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, but the one thing that the Christian needs to have that differentiates them from anyone else is hope. It's a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus that he's the first, but he's not the last. And so, potentially, you think about this metaphor, like Peter, as he talks about these sufferings, and, and, and who would want to be a Christian if all that it means is you're going to lose your house? Who wants to be a Christian if all that it means is you're going to get scorned and shamed, and it doesn't look like you're winning anything, you're losing everything, you have nothing to gain, and everything to lose? These Christians that are in Iran that you watch these YouTubes, they're just getting beaten their whole life. What in the world would make you want to be a Christian, right? To be beaten and ridiculed and mocked for people that are truly, truly persecuted all around around the world. What what, what would make you want to do that? And Peter's saying that. Don't give up your hope, right? Because it's, it's it's in the darkest places that stars shine brightest. It's the suffering. It's the suffering, not the success, that ultimately makes the Christian message compelling. It's, the, it's, it's seeing somebody put in the same furnace as somebody else, but responding differently. It's seeing somebody put on the same test and trial and have, consider it pure joy and, and have a different countenance about them, to have a different glow about their faith. And what is it that we're in this world to do other than to lead people and walk people home, right? So wherever you're in, if you're abased or abounding, right, or if you're suffering or if you're successful, none of this should change the temperature of your heart because at the end of the day, the only thing that makes us have any type of glory or have any type of worth or significance is the hope that we have. It's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a changing hope. And the hope that is not changing is changing us. It is whittling us down. The fire is coming alongside of us, right? To burn away false hopes that we might have true joy again, that we might be people that laugh and cry with great trust. And so the question um, I have for you today as you consider in your groups and just in your quiet times is this question is, where is your hope? Is your hope in something that is living or hope in something that is dying? And litmus test points that I want you to consider is your responses to when things work out and when they don't work out in your life. The trigger points that you have are pointing to a false hope. The place that you become lesser versions of yourself and brutal and mean and vindictive, they're revealing a hope. A false hope, but a hope. And that hope has come to be just let go of so that we might grab hold of a real hope. Number two, where is it that we are giving up the The kind of apathy that can hit our hearts and our souls when something doesn't go right is telling us about a false hope that he is pruning off of us. Where is it that we are fantasizing and not living in the real world and not being present and presently minded is showing us about a false hope? Where is it, as you discuss with your groups and with your spouse and with your friends, that you are finding false hopes and living hopes? And so I'll close with this last passage in Hebrews 11, and we are going to pray for schools just at the very end of this time. Um, but um, uh, this is the passage I want to read to you. It says, um, all these people, this is Hebrews 11, speaking of the church of ages and the church today, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they have been thinking of a country that they had left, They would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared 
a city for them. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.